I would say that if you've been unkind to somebody, uh, obviously you want to go and confess that to them, and uh, hopefully they would accept your confession uh, as sincere. Um, my guess is part of what's happening there is not, it's not so much that they wouldn't recognize that your confession was sincere, but maybe they wouldn't trust you in the way they did before the act of unkindness. So a distinction I would make would be between confessing your sin and seeking the person's forgiveness. And, and if, somebody, if, you, if somebody has, say, sinned against you and they come to you and they confess that sin and they ask for forgiveness, now the ball's in your court. You know, they've passed the ball to you and it's your job to complete the play by granting them forgiveness. So there's an obligation. If somebody confesses sin to you and seeks your forgiveness, you, you should grant that forgiveness. There's a lot that Scripture says that's very scary, actually, about what happens if you withhold forgiveness from someone who seeks it from you. That would actually tie in with some things I said about judging others, being uh, unforgiving towards others. But here's a distinction I would make that might help in this kind of situation. There's a distinction between somebody confessing their sin to you and you forgiving them and then, say, you trusting that person again. So let's say you come over to my house, I invite you over to my house for dinner, and let's say that while you're there, you slip off into my room at some point and you steal my wallet. And I realize my wallet's missing, and then you come and confess it, and I forgive you, and you give me my wallet back, and so we're restored as far as that goes, but I'm probably not going to trust you for a while. You're probably going to have to go for a while with a good track record before I can fully trust you again. So we're restored. We're right with one another. And I'm not holding a grudge against you. But that doesn't mean that I have to trust you the way I did before this incident happened. Trust is, is, a, is a different element in a relationship. And I'm guessing that's the kind of thing this is getting at, is when trust is broken down, confession and forgiveness is part of it. And that restores the relationship in principle. But you may not fully trust that person that sinned against you for a while. And if you're the one who's, who's in that position of sinning, then it's incumbent upon you to do things that would restore trust. So, you know, if you've stolen my wallet, I might have you over at my house again, but I'm probably going to lock the door so you can't go back. You know. But eventually I might get to where I don't feel that way anymore and, I, and trust has been restored. So that's, that's kind of how I would look at that. Okay, another kindness question. How would you make a difference between tough love and kindness Say that your friend, I think maybe they're hit, somebody's hinting at something today, uh, say that your friend sings out of tune. Um, <laughs> would you show tough love by telling them that they're singing out of tune or just show kindness and say nothing? Well, on behalf of all people who sing out of tune, I would just say go easy on us. <laughs> Let me start with that. Your speaker sings out of tune, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, so here's, here's the thing. Our culture wants to say that kindness and love are kind of these gooey, amorphous emotions that don't really have any structure or backbone to them. And so, for example, to love somebody is to accept them the way that they are. If you disagree with the way somebody's choosing to live their life, that disagreement is unloving. Okay, that's the way our culture looks at love. That's the way our culture looks at kindness. There's no structure or objectivity to it. There's, there's no law or, or, or obligation or or uh, moral framework that goes with it to love somebody just to accept them as they are. And that's what you see in our culture, right? When our culture preaches these mantras of diversity and equality and when they use those kinds of buzzwords, that's really what they're talking about. Just accept people as they are. You know, if somebody is living, uh, you know, in a 
what, what, what we would call uh, a, an ungodly sexual lifestyle, the loving thing to do is just to let them go on with that and you never say anything because to say something critical would be unloving. Okay, that's the way the culture looks at it. The Bible's whole understanding of what love is, of what kindness is, is entirely different. Uh, it, the, the, the kind of love that we show is not a lawless love, it's a lawful love. It's kindness, but it's kindness informed by the law of God, informed by the word of God. So uh, when you have somebody who is living, say, in a self-destructive way, sometimes one of the most loving things you can do is go to that person and confront them in their sin. You know this because I think virtually all of you would have grown up in homes where your parents disciplined you. And why did they go to the trouble of disciplining you? They disciplined you precisely because they loved you. There are some people who would say, oh, if I love my child, I'm going to let him do what he wants. I'm not going to discipline him. But the Bible says, he who spares the rod hates the child. So if, you're going to, if, if you really love your child, you're going to discipline your child. And I would say it's the same kind of thing in our relationships. We have to be able to confront people in love. Uh, and, and that is an expression of kindness when the sin is that serious. Now, somebody's singing out of tune. I don't know if I want to put that totally in the sinful category. Maybe somebody could do better. Um, maybe we could take up a collection and pay for singing lessons for that person. Maybe that would be a kind way to deal with the problem. I don't know. Um, but uh, my, my suggestion to you is sit next to somebody else. That's what <laughs> How should we distinguish between good peer pressure and bad peer pressure, even in church circles? Could you give an example of what this looks like? Yeah, sure. So we should not make the assumption that just because they're church kids that they're going to be good kids who always do what is right. We know from sad experience from life in the church that a lot of times... There are kids who can be in Christian homes and in a good, faithful church who are still going to go astray, who are going to be dabbling with sin or maybe going whole hog into some kind of sin, and they'll want to take others with them. That, you know, one thing you see at the beginning of Proverbs, the very first temptation that the young man faces is a gang comes, and they say to the young man, hey, join up with us, we'll get all kinds of plunder and wealth for free without having to work because we'll just take it. And it's this violent gang of thugs, and he's got to say no to the group. But presumably, these are kids in Israel. They're part of the Old Covenant Church who come and make this offer. So uh, he's got to learn to make distinctions, even within the covenant community, of those who are good and healthy to hang around, those who are headed in the right direction with their lives. It's not the perfection of their lives, but the direction of their lives, versus those who are showing signs of being wobbly in their faith. And so, again, you can still have a relationship with those kids who are wobbly in their faith. And it might even be that God will use you as a means to speak into their life or you can alert others who could speak truth to them that would uh, help them if you see them straying from the path Jesus wants us to walk. Uh, But I would say to make that distinction, you just have to have your eyes open. And you can see where people are headed in their lives. You, you know right now there are people that you are, that are in your circle of friends that you feel pretty solid about, like this would be the kind of person maybe you'd want to marry or the kind of person that you can see 15, 20, 30 years down the road being a leader in the church. You can see the direction they're on. And I bet there are people in your circle of Christian friends who you're just not so sure about. You wouldn't consider that person, say, for marriage or for really close friendship because you can see they're already dabbling with rebellion of some sort. They're disrespectful to their parents. They do things their parents don't know about. They're 
they're, they're disobedient and disrespectful in various kinds of ways. And those are the people you know you've got to keep some distance from. So I would say just have your eyes open, have your ears open, pay attention, and you should be able to make that kind of distinction. Don't assume just because somebody's in the church, oh, this is going to be a safe relationship for me. This is related. How do we witness to those who were raised in the church who no longer fear God or care what he thinks? Yeah, so it sounds like this is somebody who grew up in the church who has now apostatized, who has left the faith. And, of course, this is a heartbreaking thing to have to deal with. It's heartbreaking for those parents. It's heartbreaking for the pastor, heartbreaking for the elders, and, of course, heartbreaking for the other Christians uh, who have grown up you know, around this person as you know, treating one another as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And now you've got a sheep that has strayed from the flock. And when that happens, there are lots of things that should kick in. You know, if this is somebody in one of our churches, somebody who was baptized in infancy and raised as a Christian, if they've completely abandoned the faith, I think there's a church discipline process there that the church has to go through with that person. Okay? That might sound harsh, but Jesus says that's the right and loving thing to do. This person has been in the church. Their membership in the church meant something, and now they have left the faith. And, and we have to recognize that and say, you know, this is what that means. As far as our personal relationship with that person, uh, we can, you know, Jesus says to, to treat them like an outsider, uh, but what do you do with outsiders? I mean, you do evangelize them. And so that's what we would do is try to find ways to call them back. I mean, this is the prodigal. This, 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 that question describes the story of the prodigal son. And we ought to be ready to welcome them back into the sheepfold if this sheep will come back home. And we want to see people in the church, you know, you and perhaps there would be others too, who would go after this straying sheep and try to reclaim this sheep and bring this sheep back to the sheep pen, uh, back into the fold of Jesus. It's a hard thing to do. It's really hard to do it well. Uh, it takes a lot of wisdom. You know, Galatians 6, I think, speaks to this. Let you who are spiritual restore the one who has fallen. Uh, so it, it's got to be done with, it, with maturity. Uh, but it is the kind of thing that would need to be done. So I would say it's good that you've got a handle on that being a problem that needs to be addressed in the church. And what your specific role in that is might depend on your relationship with the person, what it has been and, and, and is in the present. Uh, but certainly when you have a, a prodigal son who leaves home, we want to be praying for that person, ready to welcome that person back, and hopefully there are people in uh, that person's life who can be speaking the gospel to them. How should we handle it when advice or judgment is asked of us if we haven't dealt with our own sin? Yeah, well, somebody's asking, well, first of all, whether somebody asks you advice or not, you need to deal with your own sin. I mean, that's just a rule of the Christian life. But if somebody asks you for advice, and let's say they ask you for advice about an area where you're struggling as well, all right, they've shared their struggle with you. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to share your struggle with them. And you can uh, help and encourage one another and, and perhaps give one another some accountability uh, and that kind of thing. Without more details, it's hard to say exactly what that ought to look like, but that's the kind of thing I would think about. Can you judge yourself unjustly? Absolutely, you can. Uh, and, and Paul even talks about this. It's possible for our own consciences. Your conscience is that inner mechanism you have that, that judges, that, you know, it's the mechanism by which you judge yourself. Uh, and your conscience will either feel guilty if you've done something you think is wrong or justified if what you've done is right. 
but it is possible for our consciences to be malformed or misinformed. It's possible for us to think that something is wrong when really it's not. Now, if you think it's wrong, you shouldn't do it, uh, even if it's not actually wrong according to the law of God. And Paul talks about that in a couple different places in his letters. But I would say that's not really sufficient. The other thing you need to be doing is educating your conscience according to the word of God so that you can live in freedom in those areas where God wants you to be free. And then, of course, in those areas where God clearly has spoken and said this is wrong, if you do those kind of things, you want to feel guilt. Paul also talks about unbelievers who do this, who have seared their consciences. So a lot of times Christians will have overly sensitive consciences. They'll feel guilty about something when they haven't actually done something wrong. Um, you know, you can preach a sermon about a particular sin, and there'll be a certain kind of person in the congregation who feels guilty at the mere mentioning of something, even though they've never, you know, you might be preaching on stealing, and they've never stolen anything in their life, but they walk out of the sermon feeling guilty uh, and because they've just got a very sensitive conscience. Um, on the other hand, you've got people who don't feel guilty when they should. They have what Paul calls a seared conscience, and their conscience is misinformed, it's malformed, and of course their conscience also needs to be reformed according to God's word. But there's a lot of people who do things they don't feel guilty about when really they should. And it's because they've so hardened their hearts against the truth, their conscience is no longer functioning properly. I think you see this in our culture with a lot of sexual issues. You know, it used to be that uh, even people who were pro-choice, who were in favor of abortion being legal would say we want it to be you know, safe, legal, rare was the slogan that was used. Okay? Because everybody was kind of embarrassed by abortion, even those people who wanted abortion to be an option uh, if there was an unwanted pregnancy, which you know, we would say that's murder anyway. But now you've got women uh, who are part of this shout your abortion movement who are celebrating abortion, who are saying that this, this is the essence of my femininity that I can have a child in my womb poisoned and crushed with forceps. That, that, I'm celebrating that. I'm, I'm shouting out that I've done that, that I've had that done to my own child in the womb, the destruction of my own offspring. Okay. That is a seared conscience. Okay, this is Pride Month. Uh, the LGBT plus lifestyle is being celebrated. You're having parades. You've got companies that have changed their logos, all this kind of stuff. Okay. That is a sign of a seared conscience. This is the analogy I use. You know, let's say you're hammering in a nail, and let's say you're hammering a nail and you miss and you hit your thumb. Your thumb should hurt. Okay? If your body's working properly, your thumb will hurt, and that pain is a way of your body telling you something's wrong. Get help. You know, get a Band-Aid to stop this bleeding. But imagine if you hit your thumb and it didn't hurt. Okay? That's the seared conscience. They ought to be, their conscience ought to be in great pain. There ought to be all kinds of shame and guilt internally, but they don't feel it. They're proud about what they've done. They're, they're, they're voicing great approval of these things that Scripture calls an abomination. That's a seared conscience. Now, you've also got people who stumble hurt even if they haven't hit it with a hammer, and that's the overly sensitive conscience I was talking about. So we want our consciences to be properly formed by the Word of God, which is another reason why it's so important to immerse yourself in Scripture. With so much moral confusion in our world, we need the guidance, the, the ethical compass of Scripture to keep us informed and grounded. Okay, Pastor Lewis, we're about out of time. This will be our last question. How do you become a God-fearer, or maybe another way, of how would you recommend uh, we cultivate a fear of God? 
Yeah. I think that's great. I, I would start, if, if you ask about how do you cultivate a fear of God, um, I think that there are two things that really come to mind for people your age. One is reverence and honor towards your parents. Your parents represent God to you. They are your closest earthly representatives of God's authority in your life. And so you know, when you're a small child, the voice of mom and dad, for all practical purposes, is the voice of God to you. That doesn't mean they're infallible, but it just means they represent God to you, and in obeying them, you obey God. And so honoring your parents, you know, in that sense having a healthy fear of your parents, respecting their authority over you, their power over you, while also seeing their goodness and their love for you, you know, so that you fear them and trust them at the same time. You can fear them and rejoice in them at the same time. I would start with that. Now, if that doesn't describe your home life, you know, if that's not the kind of, say, mother or father that you've had, then things are, we'd have to talk about what that would look like. That becomes a little bit different question. The other thing I would say is worship, the weekly gathering of God's people. If you go to a healthy, faithful church that has godly and biblical worship, that worship is going to teach you the fear of God. Now, the problem is the majority of churches today, the majority of evangelical churches, even lots and lots of Reformed churches, don't have worship that's going to teach you the fear of God. It's so casual, we can just sort of saunter right into God's presence. Everything's got this kind of casual, breezy, informal kind of feel. Nobody's going to learn to, to, to fear God in that kind of context. So I would say this is one of those places where the, the old rule, lex orande, lex credendi, the law of, of prayer is the law of belief. The way we worship, it shapes what we will believe. Uh, the way we worship God will shape what we believe about God. This is where it really holds true. If you've got a liturgy that expresses reverence towards God, that's going to form you into a God-fearing man or woman. And so, you know, if, right now I think you're probably all in those kinds of churches, but as you grow up, perhaps as you move away, as you live, you know, maybe live a different place, you've got to find a church that's going to worship God in reverence and in fear. Yes, with the joy also, with, with confidence. It's not, it's not about groveling before God. I mean, Hebrews puts all these things together that we have a hard time holding together. But Hebrews says, we approach God with boldness and confidence and with reverence and fear at the same time. There's a joy as we come into God's presence, and there's also that element of knees knocking when we come into God's presence. We're meeting Aslan, the lion, the king. And so there's got to be that reverence, that fear. Get yourself in that kind of church. If you're not, that will teach you to fear God as well. Okay. We're just going to... And Elizabeth, nothing personal about that. It's a place softball. Well, many of you do. So here's some easier ones. I'm going to hand them over to Pastor Booth for some hard ones, and then I'm going to take some that... I. We'll see. Pastor Lusk, how did you or have you gotten over your fear of public speaking? <laughs> yeah, and, that's and, a, that's and thank you question. for your teachings. They are helpful. Okay, see? good, good. Uh, I hope so because I have to do it so much. But, uh, you know, I would say that... Uh, let me, let me put it to you this way. Just because you're gifted in a certain area does not mean that it's going to be easy for you to always exercise your gift. So let's say if you're called to teaching, that doesn't always mean teaching is going to be an easy thing for you to do. And I think that's one thing to keep in mind. For me, it's not really the fear of public speaking. It's more my sense of calling as a pastor that God has ordained me and appointed me to be one of his spokesmen. And that is a weighty responsibility that I think these men who are pastors would also agree with. 
Uh, that's the weightiest thing. It's not just getting up in front of people and talking, but it's getting up in front of people and speaking on behalf of God and knowing that it's your job to bring God's word to bear on people's lives. Uh, that a lot of times is a very daunting challenge, for sure. Well stated. What is your favorite or sports team? Favorite sports team? Well, college, that's easy. It's the Auburn Tigers. <laughs> Come on. I, I, wait, I want to go. Oh, wait a minute. Auburn Tigers, and you were, you were pastoring for a while in, in Monroe, was, where Pastor was, Wilk, was. doesn't he root for a different team? Yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> but it just goes to show you that the kingdom of God can reconcile all kinds and bring us together. That's uh, very good. All right, so that's college. Do you follow the NBA? Uh, not really. A- NFL? Uh, a little bit. Okay. Do you have a favorite sports team in the NFL? NFL. Uh I'd say uh, Chicago Bears, since that's where I grew up. But I got some other teams I like, too. I like the Falcons. I like the Panthers. I like the Saints. I like the Saints. All right, one more on this one. What about Major League Baseball? Braves. I don't understand that. Okay, here we go, and then we're going to change gears and thing, ramp it up a little bit. By the way, great yesterday and today, great questions. Thank you for your participation in this. You, you campers, are, you make Summer Sanctus such a joy. And so when you're participating faithfully and joyously, it increases our faithfulness and joy in, all, uh, in, in things as well. What is your, Pastor Lusk, what is your favorite part of Summer Sanctus? Well, it's not the q and I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, it's hearing you guys sing. Really, it's hearing you all sing. That's the best part. Good job. All right, pa- Pastor Lusk, I'm going to ask four questions because they're similar, and then you can take it from there. Uh, how would you go about explaining... To an LBGT friend that they need to repent without making them dig their heels in deeper? How do I help a friend that is confused and has turned to the LGBT plus lifestyle? What are you supposed to do when you have a friend or family member who either supports or is part of the LBGT plus community? And then to summarize it, what is the simplest nutshell way to refute someone who is in favor of LBGT or feminism. You all ready to sing again? <laughs> we could sing a few songs while I think about all that. Uh, yeah, those are great questions, and those are real questions. I'm sure those are real experiences. At this point, I would guess that uh, most of us know somebody who's enmeshed in uh, one of these alternative sexualities, alternatively uh, sexual lifestyles. Um, Whatever we do, anytime we approach someone who is living a lifestyle that we would disagree with, obviously we want to do so in love, and we want to do so in a spirit of compassion towards that person, recognizing we are sinners as well. Uh, There are many times in the history of the church where the church has dealt with homosexuals in unkind and cruel ways, which only drove drove them further away. And so um, 
maybe some of the backlash that's come against the church in that area has been deserved just because we, we have mistreated uh, people at times in our history, and that's something that I think we need to be aware of. At the same time, the fact that there may have been mistakes made in the past or, or, or that kind of thing does not at all change truth. Truth is still true. What's right is still right. What's wrong is still wrong. And we have to be willing to speak those things and say those things. And, of course, in our current cultural context, that's going to be very politically incorrect. Uh, it's, it's not going to win you a lot of uh, popularity points uh, to say what needs to be said in those kinds of situations. I can tell you just from our own church's history, just a, a couple examples of this, we actually had a, uh, a gay man who showed up at our church one Sunday morning. And he, I mean, you didn't have to ask. He was very obviously gay, very flamboyantly dressed and uh, act, you know, acted in a very uh, effeminate way. And, and he was very clearly gay. And uh, I happened to be preaching through 1 Corinthians at the time when Lance showed up. And, you know, if you know about the letter of 1 Corinthians, it's like, I mean, every other sermon was about sex. And there's a lot about homosexuality there. So these things were coming up in the sermons. And I, I reached out to Lance. Uh, he had a, a very interesting and very sad background. One thing I would tell you is that a lot of people who opt into a gay or lesbian lifestyle or even a bisexual lifestyle, or I would say this is true of transgenders as well, a lot of times they have had some kind of horrible trauma in their background that just hasn't been dealt with. And one of the ways that they've tried to cope with that is by turning to some other kind of sexuality. And that was certainly true in Lance's case, and it was a very sad story. I won't go into those details, but as he told me his story, of course, I, I felt a great deal of compassion for him. It doesn't excuse anything that he might have done. He's responsible for his decisions, but it did help me understand why he was in the position in life that he was in, and he was um, you know, battling with some depression and, and a lot of other personal problems. But I reached out to Lance. We had people in our church who reached out to Lance, and Lance came to our church for somewhere between six and nine months uh, very regularly, and he never believed much of anything I said, uh, to be honest with you. Um, when he finally said he was not going to come anymore, he, 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 he claimed to have some kind of belief in God. He said it was because God told him he didn't have to come to our church anymore. And, uh, you know, that was sad for us. But one of the things he told me on his way out is he said that, uh, he, said, he said, all the people in your church have been very, very kind to me. Uh, he said, I know we disagree, but, you know, I, I, I can tell that they have loved me. And he, he said, uh, he told me, he said, I wish I could have what the families in your church have, but I know I never can. And, and it was heartbreaking. And I, I said to Lance, I said, you know, you, you, you may or may not be able to have that kind of family life, but you can have the most important things that we have. To do that, you've got to turn to Christ. And, of course, I had shared Christ with him and pleaded with him to turn to Christ many, many times. Lance and I would get together for lunch from time to time, and we would kind of alternate picking restaurants. And so um, let's just say that I went, I saw a side of Birmingham that I hadn't seen, uh, you know, outside of my relationship with Lance, um, because he took me to places that I wouldn't normally go, I guess, for, for lunch. But, uh, you know, I, I tried to befriend him, get to know him, love him, show him Christ. Other people in our church did that as well. And that's what you do. And you leave the results of that to God. And in some cases... There are tremendous success stories where God will use that kind of ministry in somebody's life. If you know the name Rosaria Butterfield, she's got a terrific story. She was a lesbian women's studies professor at Syracuse, you know, a very liberal university in upstate New York, and a pastor befriended her 
and, and, and showed her hospitality and had her into you know, their home with his wife, and they had a lot of conversations with her. And over time, her resistance to the gospel and her resistance to repenting of her lesbian lifestyle, that, that resistance was broken down, and she converted. And actually now she's a pastor's wife who's homeschooled her kids and uh, does, has done a lot of great writing and speaking on these issues. And she's somebody I would encourage you to, to read, or you can look up videos that she's got online. Uh, she's got a tremendous ministry and, and does a really good job because she's been on the inside of lesbianism and, and the LGBTQ movement. She knows what that's like, and so she can speak to it with a lot of authority and a lot of insight, and it's, it's very, very helpful. One of the things she points out is that one of the best ways to, you know, the, the way that she was reached and the way she would recommend reaching others is through hospitality. Uh, so, you know, if you've got somebody who's enmeshed in the gay lifestyle, uh, a lot of, that's their community. And, you know, you're not just asking this person to leave behind uh, a sexual lifestyle they're living, but really to, to, to change cultures, to, to change communities. And for them to do that, they've got to see that the church will be a landing place where I will be able to, to, to make friends and have community and that kind of thing. And so hospitality becomes very, very important. So I would say things like this uh, are crucial in our ministry to people who are in these kinds of situations. Now, I think there's also a question there about just dealing with people whose opinions have changed. Is that, is that right? Do you remember that? Um, you know, there, again, you just, you just want to have discussions and you want to read and study up on the arguments yourself how to make the best possible case uh, against the legitimacy of the gay lifestyle or transgenderism or whatever it might be and that's going to take a little work a little study on your part but it can be done and and here's the thing you need to know you know when you look at the scriptures there's no question the bible's on our side but it's not just that you can look at nature you can look at at, at how we're designed and we've got nature on our side. Creation is on our side as well. Uh, so that doesn't mean we're always going to be convincing. Again, we leave the results to God. But you should be able to have that conversation with confidence. You should be able to have that conversation knowing that the truth is on your side. Uh, God's truth in Scripture and God's truth revealed in nature is on your side. And so have that, those kinds of conversations with confidence. Um, and, and trust that God will use the things that you say. And, you know, if you're in this situation where you've got friends or family members who are now promoting, uh, you know, the gay rights movement and, and everything that's associated with that, uh, I would tell you to have, have those conversations with them. And one thing you'll find is after you have those conversations, you'll learn a lot about better ways to make your case over time, and you'll get more and more effective as an apologist, a defender for God's truth in this area. So be winsome, be wise, be loving, be kind, but do all of that in service to the truth as a way of promoting God's truth in these areas. Again, our culture, as I talked about, is so confused in this area. Really, the most loving thing we can do is point people to the truth, point people to reality. I want to do a, a follow-up. want to do a follow-up on that great answer in terms of being loving and gracious and all that is there a time uh, when we have to take a firm stand or even an aggressive stand against outward behavior opposition to the church and beyond that what about the church's response not just our individual response things like sermons mm -hmm. church discipline yeah. those kinds of yeah. things oh yeah absolutely yeah so uh, I'm, 
you know, I've, I've preached quite a number of sermons on all of these kinds of issues. When the Obergefell ruling on same-sex marriage came down, I preached, I think it was like three or four sermons on, on, on that topic then. And, of course, I preached on this already going through Corinthians and, and at some other times. So I would say pastors and church leaders have got a real responsibility to educate their congregations in these areas. That's something that, that we should be doing. Um, and certainly church discipline's part of that as well. Uh, if you have somebody in your church who falls into a gay lifestyle, who pursues a gay or lesbian lifestyle, that's the direction they choose to go, that's not compatible with being a Christian. Uh, and so at that point, a church discipline process would kick in just like it would for adultery or any other sin that somebody might, you know, serious sin that somebody might jump into that is just not compatible with a profession of Christian faith. So church discipline would be a key piece of that if you're talking about somebody who's inside the church. And again, uh, you know, if the church excommunicates somebody because they have uh, you know, come out of the closet, so to speak, and they're saying that they're gay, uh, that's not going to win the church any popularity points. But it just doesn't matter. That's not what we're after. What we are after is being faithful. We want to be a faithful representation of the body of Christ. And yes, that will mean that we've got to engage in discipline uh, at times. We need to be willing to address it in that kind of way as well if it's inside the church. So churches need to educate. We need to educate our members in these things. And then we need to follow through with consistent discipline. But I'll tell you this, you know, if the church has been real uh, lax in disciplining, disciplining, you know, say, fornication between a man and a woman, then it gets really, really hard to discipline for uh, homosexuality, you know, when somebody's gay or lesbian. We need to be, it's the whole Bible. We want to apply the whole Bible. And and we don't want to, you know, we don't have a different standard. We, We all live by the standard of God's word, and that's what we want to hold people to. And so when it comes to discipline, we need to be consistent. We need to be uh, faithful in how we carry it out. And you guys feel free to add to what I say here. Amen. All right, uh, two here in the... What's that? That was what we had. Okay. Amen. I'll take that. Uh, We're going to do two uh, here, just uh, more direct questions, and then we're going to sing page 34. I know that my Redeemer lives, but here's the first question. What does it mean to be judgmental in a Christian way? Okay, yeah, so what's it mean to be judgmental in a Christian way? That's really what I was trying to get at in my sermon from Matthew 7 is describe what that looks like. When Jesus says, judge not, there's a certain kind of judging he's forbidding, but there's a certain kind of judging he's not forbidding. So what is he forbidding? Well, I think it's clear. He's forbidding any kind of hypocritical judging, self-righteous judging. He's forbidding the kind of judging that the Pharisees were engaging in. That's, That's what he's saying to not do. But it's clear we do have to still make judgments, as I pointed out in in that talk. And I would say that to make those judgments means to make those judgments in line with God's word. It means that you have dealt with your own sin first. That's clear in Matthew 7. It's also clear in passages like Galatians 6. Uh, It means you're going to make the judgment in love, even if you have some really hard things to say. And again, this is where our, our culture confuses us because our culture says, well, if you disagree and, and, uh, and you speak out against what I'm doing, then you don't love me. Whereas, no, actually, I'm speaking out. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you what you're doing is self-destructive because I love you, just like your parents discipline you because they love you. And if they didn't discipline you, that would actually be a sign that they don't love you. So our culture's got all that backwards. So I would say so, those are some of the characteristics or features of judging in a Christian way. 
Uh, it's, it's judging in line with God's truth. It's dealing with your own sin first. And it's, it's speaking truth to people in a loving kind of way. But love doesn't look like what the world thinks that it looks like. Thank you. Uh, in relation to your talk in session four, would you say that in the ancient world, pagan men oppressed their wives and Christian men did not? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't know that I know all the details of, of history. I mean, I, you know, pagan cultures, that covers a lot of different things. Here's what I would say. There's no question that in the ancient world, um, women were oppressed. The reality is most men were oppressed as well. It was just an oppressive place, period. There's no question. Women had really, really hard lives, and men had really, really hard lives. I forget the exact statistic, but in the first century, um, you know, in the days of you know, Jesus and then Paul, you think about Paul's letters where he addresses, say, the issue of slavery. I forget the exact statistic, but uh, a huge percentage of the Roman Empire um, was made up of slaves. Uh, so, you know, the, you could say these are people who are being oppressed in, uh, to some degree. Um, so oppression was not just a female issue. It was a, it was a, it was a human issue. Um, you know, life was just very, very hard. There's no question that um, what we think of as women's rights and, um, and, and you know, women, um, you know, say, having the opportunity to be educated, um, women being treated with dignity and respect, that, there's no question that those are fruits of the gospel in the world. There's a really interesting book I would recommend to you uh, to read at some point. And it's, it's, had a couple, it's been published under a couple different titles, but the one I remember is uh, it's called Under the Influence by Alvin Schmidt. And it basically looks at the influence of the Christian faith over the centuries on all these different areas of life. And one area that he points out is the impact that the Christian faith had on women and their standing in society. And it was really transformative for women. It was liberating for women. Really, it was liberating for everybody who came to believe the gospel. But there are some unique ways in which the gospel was, was liberating for women and uh, elevated the status of women in society in some, some really important ways. So I would say that kind of thing is very much the fruit of the gospel in the world. Just like the eradication of slavery in general, uh, I think can be attributed to the influence of the gospel in the world. When people are set free from their sins, uh, eventually they seek out uh, and find other forms of freedom as well. Political freedom, economic freedom, follow in the wake of the gospel. And uh, so the gospel is liberating in that kind of way. It frees us from, from bondage. A, a state that is transformed by the gospel is not going to be uh, oppressive in the way that a, that a non-Christian or pagan state will be oppressive to its people. A father who has come to know the gospel is not going to oppress his family in the way that a non-Christian father might oppress his family and so forth. So uh, the gospel has this liberating effect. Uh, and that's been very, very good for women. There's this whole narrative now that you hear in feminist circles that the Christian faith is terrible for women and oppressive to women. And it's just not true. It's false. It's false. Now, they'll say, oh, because you won't let women be pastors, therefore, you know, that's an injustice. Or because you say wives must submit to their husbands, that's a form of oppression. But rightly understood, those things are not forms of oppression. When you look at what Scripture actually says, when you look at how God has actually designed us to live, and when you look at the glorious role that God's given to men and the glorious role that God's given to women and the way that those roles can mesh together, uh, it's not an oppressive thing at all. Um, to say that it's oppressive for a woman to live out the design 
that God has made her for would be like saying that water oppresses fish or that the air oppresses birds. No, that's, that's where they're free to fly. That's where the fish is free to swim. And when a woman lives according to her God-given design, that's what she was made for. So it's really not oppressive at all. Um, so uh, that, that's, a, that's a narrative in our culture that we've got to counter, uh, I think. Page 34. These are the next a chance to be women, why do you think they just not do it? Okay, I'm not totally sure I understand this question. So if this is your question and I don't get it right, come ask me again. Um, If women are given the opportunity... Here's something that's very interesting, and this is the kind of thing that feminists have no good explanation for. There is what has become known to sociologists uh, as the Scandinavian paradox. Okay, you know the countries, in, the Scandinavian countries uh, over in Northern Europe. They are the most, you could say in a way, feminist or gender equalized, sex equalized cultures in the world. Um, they intentionally in their schools pursue a gender neutral way of raising and educating children. It's, it's a culture in which there is supposed to be absolute gender equality. Uh, they've gone further down this path than any other nations or cultures in the world. But what's astounding, you might think, oh, well, okay, then that means that probably every, per- you know, if you believe the, the, what, what feminists say about men and women being basically the same, then you would think, well, that probably means every profession is going to end up about 50% men and 50% women, right? Because if men and women really aren't that different, they're going to end up choosing... Um, professions at an equal rate. Actually, what has happened is the gender ratios have gotten even more uh, extreme. So in, in these Scandinavian countries where you know, anybody can be anything and women are encouraged to pursue, say, STEM professions, you know, professions in science and technology and engineering and mathematics, just as much as men would be, um, they have they have fewer female engineers now than they used to before they had this gender equality. I don't remember the exact stats. You can look it up. It's, it's all, you know, it'd be all over Google. But it's something like 95% of their engineers are male. There's nothing keeping women from pursuing engineering. They just choose not to because men are more often bent in that direction than women are. On the other hand, Nursing, you know, which, which is a profession that often uh, appeals to, I mean, there's some great male nurses. We've got one here with us. Nope, no, you know, don't. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's a profession that's typically been, uh, you know, more for females. It's like 95% uh, of their nurses are women. And so you have men and women free to do whatever they want, and they choose to go in different directions. And, of course, this is, this is called the Scandinavian paradox because it's not what people expected to happen. They expected more of a 50-50. Well, maybe some professions would end up, you know, 55-45, biased towards one sex or the other, but it hasn't been that way at all. Left to themselves, given freedom to choose, men and women make very different life choices. They have very different interests, proclivities, abilities, capacities, interests. Men and women are just different. And it's, it's been proven. So here you have a country that tried to social engineer equality, and they got this, these radical differences. Another example of this, and this is a good example because it controls um, for a lot of variables, is Uber drivers. You know, you all probably not used Uber, but you know, 
you can get a you can get an Uber to come pick you up, and you don't know if you're getting a male or female driver. Well, um, what they found is that um, male Uber drivers make on typically make a lot more money than female Uber drivers. Now again. There's, there's no discrimination. There's no bias. It's not like people are choosing male drivers over female drivers. They can't do that. There's no option to do that. There's no way you could do that. Um, whatever you might think about women drivers, <laughs> okay, you, don't have an, you can't opt for a male driver. It's just how it is. Um, but men make different choices. They're willing to work longer hours or uh, higher traffic hours. That can maybe more dangerous hours or drive in more dangerous parts of town, whatever it may be, uh, than the women. So they end up making more money. There's no bias. There's no discrimination in that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, again, it's just these are, these are features. These are aspects of the way God made the world. They're aspects of our masculinity and femininity that are expressing themselves where there, there's, you know, there's nothing constraining what happens, and men and women choose very differently. They, they, uh, they end up making different kinds of lifestyle choices or work choices. And again, we shouldn't be bothered by that at all. That's just an aspect of the way the world is. Most women, even in America today, even after a few generations of modern feminism, most women still choose to work fewer hours than men, uh, many, many women say when they're surveyed that if they really had their way, they'd work part-time so they could be more flexible and spend more time with their kids. Um, so, uh, whereas men, it's not that way. You know, men see work as very central to their lives and want to provide for their families and feel a burden and obligation to do that, and so they, they make different choices. Most men don't want to work part-time. They want to work full-time. That's, um, they understand that's part of their... Uh, obligation as a man. So these are just differences. Uh, and you can try to use social engineering to make them go away, but they just don't. Uh, they just don't. We were talking about this at lunch uh, here a little bit. I've got a saying. I tell people, you know, there's this thing called reality, and you ought to check in with it every now and then. And, and that's what I want to say to the feminists and the others who are pushing this, this gender agenda. Uh, it's, it's just not in touch with reality and the way God made us. I, again, I don't know if that's exactly what the question was getting at, but that's, that's how it... But they can follow up with yeah. you, right? Okay, very good. A couple more here. For women, when should a woman step in when men fail, like Deborah in Judges? Okay, yeah, that's a really good question, too. Yeah, so if you know the story with Deborah in Judges, the, uh, the Jewish men basically fail. They fail to show courage. They fail to step up and be men at a particular time. And so uh, Deborah uh, has to basically do what the men won't. And the men still go into battle, but because a woman is involved, uh, the men are not going to get the glory that they would otherwise get. And it's, it's an interesting story. Um, you got another story like that with uh, Abigail and her husband, Nabal, who's a fool. And Abigail has to step in and compensate for his destructive uh, behavior. And so though we know from those scriptures that there are times where women will need to do that. Uh, I have not thought about those passages in a way that I've really come up with criteria that would say, okay, this is when a woman can step in. Um, so maybe Pastor Booth or Pastor Neal could, could speak to that. But we know there are times where that needs to happen. Uh, and so uh, a, a woman, you know, say a wife whose husband is doing something very destructive, uh, to their family life, uh, doing something very destructive to himself, she certainly can step in. Uh, she, can, she can use whatever means are at her, at her disposal to try to stop his destructive behavior. A lot of times that may mean going to the elders 
uh, of the church. You know, if he's doing something really destructively sinful in the home and letting the elders be involved and help uh, work out the situation. Maybe going to the law if he's doing something illegal. Um, when we talk about wives submitting to their husbands, we don't mean that a wife has to follow her husband blindly in whatever he chooses to do. If he's choosing to do something that's sinful, no, she doesn't have to submit. Paul says, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. So submitting to your husband is a way of submitting to, your, to the Lord, but if your husband wants you to do something that's contrary to the Lord's will, then you don't submit to your husband anymore. You know, if he wants uh, to do something that's illegal, then you don't go along with it. You say, no, I'm not going to do that. He wants to do something that's sinful. You say, no, I'm not going to go along with that. And a woman certainly has that prerogative. It's the same thing we would say in cases of civil disobedience. I mean, that, that's, that'd be somewhat analogous, not totally analogous, but somewhat analogous. Times when we would say, you know what, we've got to obey God rather than men, and so we're not going to do what the state's asking us to do. There may be times where a wife has to say, I've got to obey God rather than this, this man, even though I'm married to him. And so I, I can't go along with it. You guys may want to add to that, because I don't know if I really answered the heart of the question. I, I think, Pastor Les, you demonstrated the wisdom by being cautious and putting guardrails up in your, in your answer. And, and, and I'll say why pastorally, and I, I trust Pastor Booth will uh, concur with this. There are so many details that are left out of a question like that, and then pastorally, you'd want to be involved in the situation and, before you could counsel to that, in that regard, because... People can, can phrase things any particular way. So I thought your answer showed uh, uh, discretion and wisdom by not going too far, you know, because people can take it the wrong way. So well, I'd say if I didn't answer your question, come ask Pastor Neil. And I'll, I'll show you where Pastor Booth is staying. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's another one. Uh, and I think every one of you wrote this. Any book recommendations for teens about biblical masculinity and femininity? Hmm. Yeah, well, especially for masculinity. That comes to mind more easily. For masculinity, um, there are two books by Doug Wilson I'd recommend to you. Um, guys, if you've not read Fidelity, that's a really good book to read on uh, just a number of different sexual issues filled with uh, wise counsel straight out of the scriptures uh, about just about every sexual issue you can think of. So super, super helpful. And the other one that I would put with that is his book on Proverbs called Future Men. is a very good book for young men to read as well. Uh, I think that book, does, it's, just a, it's, a, it's an overview of themes from Proverbs. And, of course, Proverbs is written for young men. I mean, that's the, the explicit audience. We all benefit from it, of course. Uh, but it's, it's addressed to young men. And uh, Doug Wilson's book there, Future Men, is a really, really good treatment uh, of themes from Proverbs as they apply to young men. So it deals with all kinds of things like you know, laziness and, and work uh, and, and, and all those themes that come up in the book of Proverbs. Um, now, for femininity, that's a little bit tougher, and I'm kind of drawing a blank here. You guys help me out. What, what, what? Yes, Love Thy Body. Yes, yes, Nancy Percy's book, uh, Love Thy Body, is excellent. That's a great book for, for the men to read, too. But it deals with all of these sexual issues, abortion, homosexuality, all of these things. And, and Nancy Percy ties them together really, really well as basically attacks on our created embodiedness. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a very, very good book. Yeah, that one's excellent. Even Exile. Even Exile is a really good uh, critique of feminism. Is that Merkel? Becca Merkel? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good book on, uh, on feminism. Um, I mentioned Suzanne Ventker. I don't think she's a Christian, 
Um, and I would say that in every one of her articles, it seems like there's about two-thirds of the article that's really good and about a third that's a little off. Uh, but Suzanne Venker uh, has done a lot of good work in this area, basically trying to help young women uh, not be swept away by the feminist narrative and understand how it's really not in their best interest to pursue the feminist agenda, the feminist life path. Uh, you know, for women, that that's, that's not, uh, it's not helpful. It doesn't lead to flourishing or thriving for women. One more academic book that is by a non-Christian called The Feminization of American Culture by Ann Douglas. If somebody wants to go a little deeper for that. Yeah, um, so Pastor Booth, in case you didn't hear, he just mentioned The Feminization of American Culture by Ann Douglas. That's a very interesting study uh, that looks at the impact of feminism on different aspects of American society. One book I'd put with that that, I mean, again, I, I don't have any reason to think this person is a Christian, but uh, Carrie Lucas's book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Feminism, is, is really interesting, uh, just dealing with a lot of these uh, issues from a, from a woman's perspective. But look, this, this is part of the problem, is that feminism is a form of identity politics. Identity politics says that our access to truth uh, that our perspective is completely determined by our identity, the group we're, or groups we're a part of, that it is, it is our social location that determines uh, what we believe or that determines what kind of access to the truth we have. So, for example, when feminists say that men cannot speak to abortion because they don't have wombs, because they cannot experience pregnancy, that is identity politics. That's saying, you men can't speak to this issue because you're not part of the group that has access to the truth about this. Identity politics is infecting all kinds of things. But here's what you need to understand, is that truth is truth. Truth is not determined by, the, by your identity, by the, the group that you happen to belong to. Truth is not male or female. Truth is not black or white. Truth is not rich or poor. Truth is truth. So we as Christians have got to reject identity politics altogether, and we have to say no. I mean, abortion is not an issue just for women to speak to for several reasons. One is, any time a child is conceived, a father, there's a father just as much as there's a mother, there's a man involved just as much as a woman. Uh, Roe v. Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court decision, said that abortion uh, is a decision that a woman makes not with the father, but with her doctor. Not, not with the baby's father, but with... Uh, with the doctor. And so it cut the man out of the process altogether, even though that's just as much his child as her child. Okay? That, that's, that's completely wrong. I mean, basically it means that every child is treated as, uh, as a, 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 in a fatherless kind of way, legally speaking. It's up, the, the mother has the decision over whether the child lives or not. Okay? That's identity politics. Okay? This is a woman's issue. Okay? But we'd say, no, it's not a woman's issue because there's a man involved in the conception of the child. It's not a woman's issue because it's an issue of right or wrong. It's an issue of what's truth and, 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 and what's false, what's true and what's false. Uh, it's an issue of life and death. And the arguments that we make for abortion don't depend on you know, whether you're a man or a woman. You were making the argument that this is a life that abortion is destroying, that it's, it's murder, murdering an innocent person. Uh, that's our argument. And that argument does not depend on uh, whether or not you're male or female. So feminism is an aspect that's tied in with identity politics. We've got to reject that whole project. We've got to reject that, that, that whole uh, way of thinking that's so prevalent now in our culture. 
Um, so that's I'd very good. Add that. Uh, we're going to do one more question in a minute, and what we're going to do is uh, you all know the, the song "O God of Earth and Altar." Okay, we're going to sing "Lead On, O King Eternal" to that tune. It's called "King's Lynn." The tune is "King's Lynn." I think it's on page 36. We're going to sing that. And then we may sing a couple more from Pastor Alexander, and then we've got another question from Pastor Lusk. Allow him to take a look at it first. What advice, Pastor Lusk, were you given when you were younger that you remember and apply to yourself to this day? Hmm. That's good. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I can think of a lot of things I was told by uh, leaders in the church and uh, certainly by my parents. There were real helpful pieces of advice. Of course, the world has changed in a lot of ways, but uh, I think so many of the lessons that they taught me are still directly relevant. Um, let me answer this question by, by putting it to you this way. Um, I mean, a lot of the things that I've given to you in these talks this week, maybe especially these last two, but I'd say others as well, uh, are things that, just to give you an example, I'm trying to teach the young people in my congregation. I'm trying to teach my own kids. You know, this, this is what I would teach my own kids today. Um, so it's kind of a, a distillation of the things that I was taught growing up in a Christian home, growing up in the church, that then I'm trying to take and um, apply to today's world and the kind of issues you're dealing with. When I was growing up, something like transgenderism would have been unheard of. And there was no such thing as gay marriage. If people talked about it, it was maybe like some kind of joke, like, oh, that'll never happen kind of thing. We know that will never happen. Uh, so a lot of these things that are now, we're constantly being bombarded with, uh, we're just not there. Um, I'm not saying there wasn't sexual confusion. There was a great deal of sexual confusion when I was growing up. But it wasn't uh, the same kind of sexual confusion we have today. Uh, but I would say the talks I've given you here would be the kind of things I would distill from the teaching I've received from uh, you know, over the course of my life and trying to take all of that and apply it to you all in the situation that you're in. Um, that, that's, that's what I would tell you. All right, I'm going to uh, ask one more on this uh, from this stack, and it's related to something that I, we think is lurking out here. And so I'm going to phrase it my own way. We keep hearing, or we may actually encounter someone who is convinced or says he or she is convinced that he or she was born in a particular way with a particular tendency, say, toward being homosexual or in some other way, what, how would you answer that? What should we say to someone that says this is a matter of my nature or my preference? Go from there. Yeah, okay. So this kind of sounds like the born this way argument where, where somebody will say, uh, you know, I can't help being same-sex attracted. I was born this way and to not act on that same-sex attraction would be to deny who I really am and I need to be authentic, I need to be the true me and, and this is who I am. Um, that kind of argument's real common, and how do you argue with that? Because somebody's talking about their own private experience. I mean, you can't enter in and know exactly when they started to have these feelings of attraction towards the same sex and that kind of thing. But there, there are several things I think you can, and again, 
you know, any kind of question like this, the way that, that, that I would answer this question kind of in the abstract, that's a little bit different than how you would deal with the actual person who might be dealing with it because there are all kinds of other factors and things you would know about the situation that would be in place. So I just put that out as a, as a caveat. But, but I, I would say this. There's actually no evidence that homosexuality is something that people are actually born with. Uh, there's just no evidence for that. Even if there were, we, we could chalk it up to being in a fallen world, and we, you know, we're, all, we're certainly all born with various sinful tendencies. Uh, we go astray speaking lies from the womb, the psalmist says. So uh, even if there were something like that, it wouldn't invalidate anything that we as Christians have to say. But there's actually no evidence. Um, it was really interesting to me, if you read the Obergefell ruling, so this, again, is the Supreme Court case from a few years back that was handed down that basically made same-sex marriage, again in scare quotes, the law of the land, uh, you know, overruling what state legislatures and so forth had said, and not to mention um, virtually the whole you know, history of the world, um, certainly Western history, Western tradition. Um, you read this, the, 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 the uh, decision, you know, when the, when, when the Supreme Court hands down a decision, they, put, they have an opinion with it that basically gives the reasoning of the court. And the way it was reasoned is homosexuality is an immutable condition. Okay, you know what immutable means, right? It means unchangeable. It means that there's nothing can be done about it. it. It just is. It can't be changed. It's immutable. Well, scientifically and experientially, that's simply not the case. There are, there are countless cases of people who uh, said that they were same-sex attracted, who experienced same-sex attraction for a period in their lives, and who were able to come through it, and uh, you know became sexually attracted to the the opposite sex. Uh, so to say that it's immutable, it's just it's just simply false. That's that's just not the case. Um, we know that because we have countless testimonies. I mentioned Rosaria Butterfield earlier. I mean, she'd be an example of this. Somebody who was a lesbian, a practicing lesbian, and who came out of it. Her lesbianism was not an immutable feature of who she was, even though she had been a lesbian for years and years and years, and her identity was totally wrapped up in being a lesbian. Okay? Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, it's really, really interesting. And this, I made reference to this passage last night when I talked about uh, you know, it's, 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 Paul gives a list of certain behavioral patterns that show that a person is outside the kingdom of God, that whatever they might say about themselves, they're not Christians because to be a Christian, you have to live a certain way. And if this is the pattern of your life, you're not a believer. And it's things like fornicators and drunkards and the effeminate and sodomites. And there's, there are other things listed there, but... But he goes on from that. He gives this list. He says, such will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, such were some of you. So you have people in the Corinthian church who were drunkards. They were alcoholics. And now they're not alcoholics because the grace of God has set them free. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You did live this way. You were captive to these sins, but you were set free. Well, he includes in that, you know, we might think of alcoholism as a pretty incorrigible sin. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. But Paul says, no, such were some of you. And we might say that about homosexuality. Uh, once a homosexual, always homosexual. I was born that way. It's just the way I am. It's part of my identity, my nature. But Paul points to these people in Corinth who were sodomites. They were practicing homosexuals. 
And Paul can now say, such were some of you. They were set free. They were transformed by the grace of God. It can happen. And it happens all the time. You don't hear stories about it very much. Because, again, these, these kind of stories are getting suppressed today. But uh, the reality is, I, I don't, again, I don't remember the exact statistics on this, but a, a, uh, just like uh, there are people who experience gender dysphoria at some point in their youth as they're growing up, they identify with the opposite sex. And, of course, in, today they, in today's world, they'd be told, oh, if you're feeling like maybe you're a woman trapped in a man's body, maybe you really are a woman and we should do surgeries on you and give you hormone injections and all of that. Okay. But the reality is uh, the vast, vast majority of people who experience gender dysphoria outgrow it. It's not a lasting condition. There's a book on transgenderism called When Harry Became Sally. And it's a great book. It's Ryan Anderson. He's a Roman Catholic scholar. Excellent book. Uh, there's a chapter in that book that is testimonies of people who experienced gender dysphoria and who underwent the hormone treatments and the surgery, you know, sexual reassignment surgery, and then later came to regret it. But, of course, by then they had completely mutilated their bodies. They realized it was a mistake. It was just a phase they were passing through. And yet they, 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 they did all of this damage to their body in the meantime. Whereas if they had been counseled and if there hadn't been this rush to do surgery and that kind of thing, they would have come out of it. Same kind of thing with homosexuality. There are people who struggle with same-sex attraction at some point in their life when they're growing up. And then they come out of it. And I, I can't remember... Um, the exact statistics, but it's a majority. Over 50% of the people who experience same-sex attraction at some point in their youth outgrow it, overcome it, however you want to describe that. And I'm not even talking about Christians here. I'm just saying in general. Um, So the the whole idea that I was born this way and I have this fixed, immutable sexual orientation towards people of the same sex is just simply false. The whole idea of a sexual orientation actually is not even a a biblical concept, actually. Our sexuality is, is in reality, quite malleable and can be uh, shaped in various ways. And we can even choose to shape it uh, by the decisions we make, the things that we expose ourselves to. Uh, This is one of the things that's so dangerous about certain forms of of music or movies or other forms of pop culture, of course, pornography. These things will shape your sexuality. Your sexual desires are not immutable. That's why pornography is often a gateway to all kinds of other sexual perversions. You know, a lot of times people who end up pers- you know, pursuing, say, a homosexual lifestyle started out you know, with some kind of pornography and it just progressed from there and they were looking for something more and more perverse, more and more weird because there's this thing called the law of diminishing returns where the things that used to arouse you because that you've pursued through pornography no longer do. And so you've got to go after something else. It's like a drug. You're looking for the next high. So I, this whole idea that our sexuality is immutable in that way is simply false. But this is why it's so important for you to be disciplined, for you to be chaste, uh, in not just in your actions, but in your thought life, to be very careful about what you take in through your eyes and your ears, because you don't want to damage your own sexuality through those kinds of things. And it's also why if you've got a friend who is saying that he now identifies as he was gay or same-sex attracted, and he's saying, I was born this way. There are all kinds of ways that I think you can, you can push back against that uh, and say, well, you know what, here are some things to consider. Uh, and, and that's what I would do. Um, you know, you, you don't, and 
depending again on your relationship with this person and any number of other factors, you could approach it different ways. But that's part of what I would do. I would focus obviously in a central way on the grace of God that can set us free from any sin. Such were some of you. But I think you can also point to these other things that are just observations about human life uh, that indicate that there are lots of people who have thought maybe they were gay for a while and then realized that they actually weren't. So there's a lot of things there to discuss. Okay. Q&A will pertain to Pastor Lusk's talks, the topics therein, and then we will blur over into some Q&A about the camp and various other matters. Okay? I'm going to allow Pastor Lusk to begin with some questions you've been receiving. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you all so much. A, a number of you have um, interacted with me, with me about the talks, and that's, that's been great. I've, I've, I've loved the questions that you've had. There were a handful of questions that have popped up again and again in my conversations with you, and so I wanted to address those here. I didn't know if they made it to the cards or not. Maybe some variation of them did, but... Uh, I think these are these are que- these are things that maybe I should have talked about anyway in my talks, uh, but uh, maybe this will be helpful for some of you who have either asked me about these things and we didn't get to finish the conversation, or if you were thinking about these things. Um, the first one has to do with the whole question of women working outside the home, and uh, you know I made reference to Titus two that talks about women being workers at home, and First Timothy chapter five that talks about the woman as a manager of the home. And I think the question is, what does that mean? And particularly, what does that mean in today's world? And um, one thing that I think is crucial to understand is the way that the household has changed over the centuries, particularly the pre-modern household, really say before the Industrial Revolution, and what the household looks like now. You go back before the Industrial Revolution, and most every household uh, was something like a family business. Every household was a place of production as much as consumption. In fact, if there wasn't production, there wasn't anything to consume. So uh, households, I wouldn't say they were completely self-sufficient, but there was a sense in which they had to be relatively independent. Uh, so every household was sort of like a family business. And so when Paul talks about women being workers at home or managers of their home, that's actually a huge task. In fact, in pre-industrial revolution economies, you, might, you could even make a case that uh, the wife and the mother, the woman in the home, was the most economically productive member of the family. Uh, and I think you see this is reflected, I think, in Proverbs chapter 31, where you see the woman's buying a field and she's making clothes for her family. So when, when Titus 2 talks about women being workers at home and it commands that, it's not that the woman is just, say, sweeping floors and making lunches. Uh, there's, there's a whole household economy where she's a very integral part of that, and the household's survival depends upon the members of the household making their contribution to the economics of the home. Obviously, today, that's not the case. We have appliances that have greatly cut down on the kind of work that has to be done in the home. Uh, we, have, uh, we have just a different kind of economy altogether. We could go through all the ways in which the economy has changed, but it's, it's very, very different. And so our homes are really not places of production the way they once were. They're really places of consumption, and we do our producing outside the home. Think about it this way. This is one of the negatives that came out of the Industrial Revolution that I think we as Christians should push back against. Um, 
We have a tendency to think work only matters if you get paid for it. Work only matters if there's a paycheck attached to it. And so it's no wonder that a lot of women who were at home, say up through the 1950s, uh, all of a sudden started to think, you know what, I'm not, getting, I'm not making any money for this work at home. Maybe it's not that valuable. And started to doubt themselves and doubt their role in the home and started to look elsewhere. You know, I want to be, uh, I want to live a meaningful life, and it seems like meaning is attached to a paycheck, significance is ta- attached to a paycheck, so maybe I should go in pursuit of a paycheck. I think we as Christians want to do a couple things in this situation. One, we want to push back against that and say, no, a lot of uh, the most valuable labor in the world is unpaid. That's, that's one thing I think we need to be willing to say. Work has value in its relationship to God and other people, not just in relation to a paycheck. That's something really important to understand. The other thing I think we need to say is that how we apply Paul's instructions to wives and mothers about being workers at home or managers at home has got to have a certain adaptability and flexibility to it. So it could very well mean uh, for a woman starting a business at home, and that would you know, be the equivalent, making her productive in that kind of way, much like women before the Industrial Revolution. might mean working a job outside the home. Uh, preferably one with flexible hours that still allows her to meet the needs in her household uh, in, in all kinds of ways. But So, so I, I wanted to make the point in that talk that uh, I, th- I think the way I put it is a woman's priority is the home, not ne- but the home is not necessarily her place, as if she were confined to it. There's, there's some flexibility there. But the other thing I wanted to do in that talk is really glorify the role of motherhood because I think that's one of the things that's been lost in our culture. Amidst all of our talk about all the opportunities for women when it comes to, say, education and politics and all the things that women can can do and can accomplish, uh, all the gifts that they have to offer society, one thing that I think has sadly been lost is that indispensable role of the woman as mother and her irreplaceable investment in her children. And so that's something that we as Christians think want to be, uh, that we want to recapture in our culture. Um, I, several years ago, I wrote a book called Pato Faith. It was on the faith of young children, how uh, God regards our children and claims our children as his own. If, if, if we're believers, uh, we know God loves our children and includes them in his covenant, and so we baptize them and bring them to the table. And you've got passages like Psalm 22 where David says, even in the mother's womb, you were my God. Even as I was a nursing infant, uh, I was trusting in you. And one of, the, one of the things that I came across in my research again and again and again, as I was researching for that book, is how important and formative how trajectory-setting those first few years of life can be. Uh, I think it was Francis Xavier who said, give me a child for the first five years, and I don't care who has him after that. In other words, he's wet cement during those first five years, and I can mold him and shape him. And then after that, and I think he's exaggerating a little bit here, but after that, you know, the trajectory is set, and so he can, he can handle all kinds, of other, you know, all kinds of other things, even if conditions aren't ideal. Uh, I think he was saying, I can build in enough virtue and, and teaching and training in those first five years that he's going to live it out the rest of his life. Now, again, I think that's a little bit exaggerated. I think after five still matters, and you still need to be trained and taught well beyond that. But his point was, those are the most formative years and the most trajectory-setting years of life in, in certain ways. And so, uh, again, going back to what I've counseled uh, women to do in my congregation, households to do in my congregation, is... You know, when, you, when, you, 
when you're thinking about your life plan, how you want to map out your life, what you want your life to look like, I think the ideal is for a mother to be fully invested in her children when they're young. And you can decide, you know, what year, you know, how, you know, what years that needs to include, but at least the first five, it seems to me. And after that, if a, if a uh, mother, after her youngest child has gotten beyond that age, if she, you know, she then I think is free to invest herself in a lot of other things. But that's what I would say, because those years are so formative, so crucial, and they're irreplaceable. You can't get them back. Uh, meant for you, this means as you plan out your life, thinking about providing for a family in such a way that your wife will be able to stay home with the children when they're little and fully invest in them. One book that's for men, but I think women could benefit from reading it too, is uh, C.R. Wiley's book, Man of the House. Very good book on what a household economy looks like, uh, how to develop a household economy, and uh, how to think about these kinds of things. That's that's one thing I, I wanted to say is about the household and women working outside the home. Another question that's come up with, with several of you is a question about dating. Uh, I, you know, for the men, I talked about it's mission and then marriage. And, and that's because God gives Adam a job before he gives Adam a wife. And that raises the question, okay, at what age is it appropriate for me to start pursuing a woman? Especially if, you know, a, a job is still several years away, but I think I've found the right girl. What, what should that look like? Situations vary. And I would be extremely reluctant to try to lay down the law on this kind of thing. Who you need to look to for guidance and instruction, who's going to lay down the law for you on this, is your parents. And that's who you need to look to. They're going to understand you and your situation better than anyone. They're your best guides uh, in this. But there's a few few further things I would say about that that might be helpful to you. Um, One thing, I would distinguish a date from dating. A date is an event Dating is a relationship. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily uh, with a date, provided certain precautions are taken. Just to give you an example of this, at the Christian school where uh, my kids have gone, uh, there is a, 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 a dance, the Grand Fet. You know, your school may have something similar, call it something different. But um, the senior, their senior year, uh, they're allowed to take dates, and I have no objection to. My kid's taking a date or going on a date for that event. But we have, as a family, said, you know, we're not going to have dating relationships while you're in high school because it's, it's premature. It's jumping the gun. You can get to know people of the opposite sex. We'd encourage that. Uh, and that will help you sort of figure out what you're looking for in a spouse. But a dating relationship, uh, that would be premature at that stage of life. Um, so... I would look at it this way. Dating should be intentional, not recreational. The purpose of dating is to get married. And so when you start dating somebody, one of two things will happen. Either you'll break up or you'll get married. And you want to minimize the breakups and make it a pathway to marriage. And uh, so dating should be intentional. It should have that kind of purpose. You're looking for a spouse, not just somebody to pass time with, not somebody just to have a good time with. What that means is, and again, this is wisdom. There's no biblical category of dating, so we're taking biblical principles and applying them to to, to the situation. I'm just giving you a sense of what, what we've tried to do as a family. Dating as a relationship should not happen until marriage is a possibility, at least not too far down the line, within some kind of reasonable time frame. So to give you an example from my own life, I started dating my wife, uh, our junior year of college. 
but we had gotten to know each other starting our freshman year of college. We got married the week after we graduated college. I could have started marrying her. I could have started dating her. I could, that's the thing. I could not have married her. That's my point. I could, not, I could have started dating her two years earlier than I did, but we would not have gotten married a day sooner. So you, you see that? I mean, there, marriage for me was not going to be possible until I graduated college, and so it didn't make sense for me to start dating somebody way before that uh, because... I mean, let's face it, there are all kinds of temptations and difficulties that come with a dating relationship. So we did start to date, and we dated for over a year before we got married, and then you know, we were engaged for six months as part of that time. But I didn't start dating her. Our relationship did not get serious in that kind of way until marriage was going to happen within a reasonable time frame. And you'll note, too, I did start dating her before I had a job. And you might say, well, wasn't it mission before marriage? What about that? That's true. And in my case, uh, what I would say is by the time I started dating her, uh, she could see that I had potential, uh, that I was going to be gainfully employed after I graduated, and so she was willing to marry me for my potential or willing to start dating me with that in view. Uh, what She could see what was happening in my life and where I was headed and wanted to be a part of that. So uh, that, that's the dating question. Your family may handle things a little bit differently. That's okay. I'm not saying everybody has to do it just like I did it in my life or just like I'm seeking to do it with my children. But that gives you some idea of how we've worked that out. Um, One other question that's come up uh, with a few of you uh, is what particularly should a woman do who wants to be married, who's now out of high school, or perhaps even out of college? I know that would be a good bit older than you all now, but just looking ahead, what should a woman do who wants to be married? She wants to be a wife and a mother, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, The right guy has not yet come along, and so now you're out of high school or perhaps out of college. What do you do? Uh, What I would say is don't waste those single years, however long they might last. There are all kinds of things that you could do that might uh, bring you into contact with uh, eligible Christian young men the Gloria Sanctus is a great opportunity to do that kind of thing. That's, I'm not saying that's what it's for, but marriages have come out of that, and that's a good thing. There are opportunities like that you can take advantage of. But a few other things just to think about for those single years. Your, your life is not on hold until you get married. It's not like life begins on your wedding day. Your life has purpose and significance even as a single person, even as a single woman. And so what I would say How do you fill those years? Three things I would especially focus on. Service, skills, and savings. Service. Find ways, you know, if, if, uh, if a woman's wondering, what do I do with these years before I get married? Find ways to serve, especially find ways to serve that will bless others and that will allow you to develop your your capabilities and your gifts as a nurturer and as a helper. That's one thing, service. Skills. Accumulate as many skills as possible. Learn domestic skills. Learn skills that will help you when you do become a wife and a mother. Learn to cook. Learn to sew. Learn to, learn to garden. There's all kinds of things that you can do to better yourself, to uh, make yourself more valuable, to make yourself even more of an asset to your household uh, when you finally do get married. And then savings. Uh, and I'd say you know, this, the, all this goes for guys during these years as well. But savings, try to minimize debt or avoid debt altogether. Uh, Seek to save money as you're working. And I would tell all young people in your situation to learn the basics, at least, 
of economics and financing. So you understand budgeting, you understand saving, you understand investing, you know how to manage money. Uh, remember, one of the things that uh, Paul says, 1 Timothy 5, women are managers at home, managers of the home. That's going to involve money. So even now in those single years, you can be learning how to handle money in a wise way. Uh, don't just don't think, oh, I'm single, so I can spend all my money on myself and go do whatever I want. There's a lot of people who treat their single years that way. It's just kind of playtime. Don't do that. Uh, I'm not saying you can't have fun, but I am saying this is a serious part of life too, and, and you, you should... Uh, have responsibilities and be training yourself to be a responsible person and you should be uh, building up assets both in terms of skills that you have acquired and in terms of financial resources or other things that you could pour into your household when you do get married. So again, what I would say in that kind of situation, don't waste your single years, use them productively. That's going to make you even more attractive to a prospective spouse in the future. Very good. Could you please uh, share a little bit about your Christian life, your upbringing, and you know your Christian growth over the yeah, years? Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, much like many of you, I was raised in a Christian home, uh, a wonderful Christian home with a with a mother and a father who loved the Lord and who loved me and who uh, taught me the faith from uh, from the earliest days. Uh, and so I was raised in a Baptist household. I was baptized when I was eight years old. Uh, we always went to church. We moved around a lot growing up, but one of the first priorities anytime we moved somewhere was to go find a faithful, Bible-believing church. And um, you know, my parents were very intent on that. Uh, they read us the Bible. They, they taught us uh, how to live faithfully as Christians. Uh, in fact, I would say while I was baptized at eight, year, eight years old, uh, looking back on my life, I can't remember a time when I didn't love and trust Jesus. That's one of the things that led me in a paedo-baptist direction to eventually become a, a paedo-baptist, uh, which means I believe in infant baptism. Uh, and it's actually also one of the things that led me to, to write the paedo-faith book I mentioned earlier about the faith of little children. I realized I couldn't, my testimony doesn't really have a before and after Okay, there's a lot of people whose testimonies have got a clear cut before and after. They can remember not being a Christian, and they know what that's like. And they might have lived you know, a, a wild, non-Christian kind of life for many years, and then they got converted, and it's kind of this dramatic thing. And, and that's wonderful when God does that in someone's life. Uh, but for me, uh, the faith came on um, from, from my earliest days. Uh, I, I was a believer from my earliest days. I can't remember a time when God wasn't all, you know, already there in my life. Uh, and so my testimony would be more like David's testimony in Psalm 22, you know, again, where David says that even from the womb, God was his God. Even as a nursing baby, he was trusting in Jesus, trusting in the Lord. And uh, that, that's very much my testimony. So I'm very grateful for that. If that's your testimony, you know, if you don't have an exciting testimony, praise God for boring testimonies. You know, for covenant children, I, that, that's, that's a really good thing. Uh, I, that, that's something you should be very, very grateful for, that God has given that to you, that that's part of your legacy, that you've been raised in a Christian home where God is trusted and loved and served and honored from the earliest days. And if your parents have built that into you, don't take it for granted. I think one of the biggest temptations for those who grow up in the context of, of, a, of a Christian home is to take it for granted and not realize the great treasure you've been given. You didn't have to fight for it. You didn't have to work through things to get there. It was handed to you. 
And so it's easy to take it for granted. That's an inheritance that it's easy to take for granted. But don't do that. Recognize you've been given a tremendous blessing. Give thanks for that and guard it diligently so you can pass it on to your children as well. Thank you. Is there something you would recommend for each of us to do upon our arrival home, either with our parents, our siblings, or otherwise? Yeah, well, I know what I'm going to do on my arrival home, and that's sleep. <laughs> so uh, maybe it depends what time you get home tonight. Uh, I, I would say, I would hope you'd be able to take these lessons I've taught here about kindness, about judging in the proper way and not judging in the wrong way, about fearing God, about living out our masculinity and our femininity as men and women. Uh, I hope you'd be able to take those lessons and find ways to put them into practice. Uh, so that, that's certainly one thing I would say. Um, I think also, you know, when you're at a camp, you know, sometimes we refer to these as sort of mountaintop experiences, and now you're about to come down off the mountain, and it's easy for that to, you know, kind of be depressing, or you'll, you know, you'll miss camp, that kind of thing. Uh, what I would say is recognize that God is with you at home just as much as he's with you at Summer Sanctus. And, you know, as exciting as this might be, and you're constantly immersed in fellowship with God's people, and you're with a lot of friends, and we're singing and praying together, and you're, you're hearing God's word read and taught to you, you know, all those great things. Okay, this is a great culture here in this camp, but the kind of culture you have here in this camp is the kind of thing that really ought to characterize our Christian lives everywhere. I mean, obviously it can't be exactly the same, but the, the kind of joy, uh, the, the kind of camaraderie, the kind of fellowship that we have, that's something we should take with us into everything we do as Christians. So this is a mountaintop experience. It's unique in certain kind of ways. But the kind of things that make this so wonderful, so glorious, you really can't take those things with you into your daily life. Now, maybe it's a little bit harder when you're with, say, your siblings than it is when you're with your friends at camp. Uh, but you can still do it. You can still do it. And that's what I'd encourage you to do uh, is take Summer Sanctus with you wherever you go from here. Three, three more questions. First of all, and this one's curious. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just reading this. Who is your favorite daughter? <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling I know who wrote this question. <laughs> I love all my daughters equally. <laughs> no, I'm not saying anything else about it. That's I good. love you all. That's good. <laughs> Who is your least... No. <laughs> now, if they said, you know, who do you love more, the dog or the kids? Now, that might be a tough question. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. Two more. Uh, this one and then... How do you approach someone when you know they've done something wrong and they won't admit it? Hmm. Wow, that's a good question. How do you... So, you know they've done something wrong and they won't admit it. Wow. Uh, well, I think it depends on the circumstances. There's not a, there, this question doesn't really give a lot of circumstances, so it's really hard to say. Uh, you know, if it's, if it's if, if, say, it's a sibling or a friend, you might go to an authority figure, say a parent, if it's in your family, or, or a pastor or elder, and uh, explain to them the situation and let them get involved. They may be able to get a confession that you can't. Uh, that's one thing you could do. Another thing you could do that I would highly recommend in this situation is pray for the person. Pray that God would open their eyes to their sin and to uh, not only what they've done wrong, but I suppose now the cover-up as well. And uh, pray that God would 
uh, would soften their heart so that they would confess their sin and seek forgiveness. And you guys can feel free to add to that if you have anything to say. That's a great answer. All right. Yesterday you mentioned that you enjoyed the singing here at Summer Sanctus. What I'd like you to do now is to pick a song that you'd like us to sing, and then we shall join together singing. All right. Let's look through here real quick. We're going to offer Pastor Lusk one more question. I'm going to read this. Here we are. What are your thoughts on the case of some families having a working mom and stay-at-home dad? The father chooses to stay home, and then the person gives his or her personal thoughts on it, but what are your thoughts? So stay-at-home dad and a working mom, what, what do I think about that? Uh, okay, um, that is becoming more common, but I would say it's terribly unhealthy and a sign of something uh, that's deeply wrong in our society. Um, that kind of gender twisting or gender bending, that kind of twisting of the sexual roles, uh, I think is, is caused by all kinds of problems and creates a whole lot of new problems as well. Um, biblically, I'm, I'm going I'm to say a few things biblically, and then I also want to say something else that's just a matter of sort of observations on the way the world works that doesn't have a Bible verse attached but has a lot of, I guess you could say, empirical research behind it. Biblically, it's clear, men are to be the providers of their household. We saw that in Genesis. You know, God gives Adam the job to do before he gives him his wife. Clearly, he's to be the provider and the protector. I call that the mantra of manhood, to protect and to provide. Men, that's what we are. We're designed for that. Our bodies are designed for that. Our minds are designed for that. We're made to provide and protect. Um, you see this, actually, I think, also in the curses in Genesis 3. I didn't talk about this, but if you look at the curses, the curses land on the man and the woman in their respective spheres, their respective realms, uh, you know, in, in, in their domains of influence or where they're going to primarily be living their lives. So where does the curse hit the man? In the realm of his work. He's still going to uh, be able to produce a living from the ground, but it's going to be by the sweat of his brow. There are going to be thorns and thistles that get in, in, in the way. So man will still be the provider after the fall, but uh, now the curse will make that much more difficult. There will be thorns and thistles to, content, to contend with. It will be by the sweat of his brow. The woman, you'll notice, is cursed in the realm of childbearing and her relationship with her husband. So her relationship with her children, her relationship with her husband is where she experiences the curse most fully. Uh, pain in childbirth, and uh, Genesis 3.16, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Um, that seems to be uh, suggesting even that the woman would want to usurp the man's role, uh, but it's, it's, it's not going to happen, but there's going to be some kind of battle of the sexes. The battle of the sexes flows out of the curse in Genesis 3. That seems to be what, what's going on there. That's why we have a hard time making things work between men and women. So you've got that in Genesis You've got just a host of other passages that point this direction. First Timothy 5 says, if a man says, if a man does not provide for his own household, he is worse than an unbeliever. 
doesn't say that about the woman. It says that about the man. The man has a fundamental responsibility to provide for his household. So I, I could point you to other texts as well, but I think that that should show you that uh, barring some kind of catastrophe, say, that would leave the man disabled and, and therefore unable to work and provide for his household, he's supposed to be the provider. And there are situations like that, so we have to make allowances for that. But biblically, the man is assigned with this role. And I would say that uh, any man who does not perform that role uh, is, it's not just that he's a bad man, he's not very good at being a man. He, he's, he's failing to express his masculinity to live out his manhood. But there's something else, and this is not, this doesn't have a thus saith the Lord behind it, but it does have a lot of uh, research behind it, and that is in these um, marriage situations, not just where, say, the woman works and the man does not, but even in situations where they both work, but where the woman makes more money than the man, it puts an enormous strain on the marriage. In fact, and I don't have the statistics at my fingertips, but you could look it up, um, when in, in a marriage situation where, they won't, where the woman, and I'm not talking about a situation where, say, the man's in graduate school and the woman's working, and then he's going to be the primary breadwinner after that. We, we can bracket out situations like that, and we will understand that life is messy and complicated, and there are situations like that. If a man is in graduate school and she's working to make sure they can pay the bills during that time, that's, that, that, that's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm just talking about as a lifestyle where the woman earns more than the man, uh, the divorce rate skyrockets. The divorce rate skyrockets because he knows he's being emasculated by this and she's kind of ashamed of the fact that she married a man who can't even out-earn her. And I can tell you too, from the, in terms of the dynamics of sexual attraction, what drives sexual attraction, what keeps people sexually attracted to one another over the course of the, the, the decades of marriage. Well, I can just tell you that a marriage in which a man does not act as the provider is not going to be very sexually attractive to his wife. Um, and that's just a fact that you need to know about the world. Um, sexual attraction is obviously greatly mysterious, uh, what, what draws us to somebody, what makes somebody attractive to us. But the reality is, it's a package of a lot of things. And I, talk, I mentioned this in, in, in the talk, that men are attracted to femininity. Women are attracted to masculinity. Okay? If a man is not pulling his weight, leading the way, if he's not good at being a man, if he's not being the, the primary provider, primary breadwinner, she's just not going to find him very attractive uh, in the long run. Um, that's what the research suggests. That's what my experience as a pastor would suggest. And in cases like that, uh, the, 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 there's all kinds of strain put on the marriage because of this role reversal, but there's not a lot of sexual energy or sexual attraction in that marriage anymore either. And so uh, their sex life uh, within the marriage starts to falter, and of course that creates all kinds of other problems in the marriage. So men, think about it this way. Uh, if you want to be sexually attractive to your future wife, you need to make yourself the kind of man who can provide for your household. That's, that's uh, I think, something that's significant. And for you ladies who you ought to read on this, I've mentioned her already. I, don't, I have no reason to think she's a Christian, but she has a lot of insight in these areas. Suzanne Venker. Look up Suzanne Venker. Google her name. Wife earns more than the husband. Look it up. She's got several articles even that address that particular issue with the statistics that, and the research that go with it that show that this is a really bad idea. 
Uh, Tucker Carlson, actually, I don't watch Fox News much, but I know he had a monologue about this earlier this year, and this is one of the problems that he addressed, one of the great social crises of the day, women out-earning men, uh, because women don't want to marry men who can't earn as much as they are or more than they are, and so it causes marital rates to plummet. It just kills the dynamic of attraction between a man and a woman. So uh, that's out there. That's stuff that's, I think, healthy to be aware of. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you all.